In the theologically conservative church of my childhood, I was asked to believe some fairly paradoxical things about Jesus that never really made sense to me, that he was both, I guess paradoxical things don't make sense, but uh, that he was fully human and fully divine, that he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. Such teachings tried to set him apart as special and holy. He seemed to be in another league, not even playing the same sport as the rest of us. As I grew up and studied the historical Jesus more closely, I came to discover that, in my opinion, but not mine alone, Jesus of Nazareth was fully human. And that if there was any sense in which he was fully divine, it was in the same way that every human being has the potential to be in touch with the sacred, the numinous, the mysterious aspects of existence. Perhaps counterintuitively, I've come to find this latter view of embracing Jesus' humanity to actually be the more challenging perspective. If Jesus, or you can substitute in the religious founder of your choice, uh, is a wholly unique God-man, then there are ways in which that lets the rest of us off the hook. If he or she or they already did all the heavy lifting back in one moment in time, some singular historic occasion, then all that's left for us to do is to remember, to honor, to worship them. In contrast, that the founder of every spiritual and religious movement, if they are actually regular human beings like the rest of us, then the onus remains on us to do likewise, potentially, to imitate, to build on, to even improve upon their example and all that we've learned in the meantime. Along these lines, I read a quote many years ago from Dorothy Day that stuck with me. Day, as many of you may know, was a social activist famous for founding the Catholic worker houses where she lived in solidarity with the poor. But she would periodically caution her admirers, don't call me a saint. Don't dismiss me so easily. She didn't want to be viewed as some special god woman to whom acts of mercy just came naturally. She didn't want us to miss the struggle, the sacrifice, the, in her words from the title of her autobiography, the long loneliness that were, that was her work in the world of doing justice. Relatedly, many people are familiar with the psychoanalyst Carl Jung's concept of the shadow, the repressed, unconscious parts of ourselves that nonetheless can have tremendous effect on us. The invitation as we mature is to become increasingly conscious of our shadow, to integrate it into our um, waking life. Often, however, references to the shadow self focus almost exclusively on the negative aspects, the way we can repress things out of guilt or shame, for example. But Jung also wrote about what he called the golden shadow, which relates to the positive, unpacked, untapped potential within ourselves. So just as someone can be particularly triggering to us, if negative aspects of their personality turn out to be a little bit, if we're honest, like the negative aspects of our personality, that can be particularly triggering to us. It's triggering our shadow. So too, if we deeply admire someone, it can be because an aspect of themselves relates to, resonates with the untapped potential within us. 
This insight invites us to reflect, for instance, on why of all the people in the world who are alive now or who have ever lived, why are there particular historical figures, particular members of our family, our friends, our colleagues that are especially fascinating to different ones of us that we particularly admire? One reason may be that that person is uh, resonating with your golden shadow, your untapped potential, inviting you to experiment with making manifest some hidden aspect of yourself. This shadow dynamic plays out not only on the individual level, but also with society at large. And on this day before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I'd like to invite us on what this perspective might have to teach us about honoring King's legacy. Just as with Jesus, Dorothy Day, other heroic figures throughout history, too often King is lionized, sanitized, and made larger than life. So let us remind ourselves that he was fully human, like the rest of us. And for those of us who admire him, the invitation is not merely to revere him as a saint, but to discern the ways that we too, within our spheres of influence, can follow his example. And you only have to scratch the surface of King's life, as you only have to scratch the surface of any of our lives, to learn that he was a great man, but he was not perfect. You can discover such a more rounded view about him as you could for many of us by talking to our parents, talking to our siblings, right? Would your siblings report that you're perfect? Uh, if, if they would, let's talk later. Uh, so... Uh, For instance, King's sister, though very affectionate in her recollections of him, is also clear that, quote, my brother was no saint. And although there were saintly signs in the stories we hear about King's childhood, such as him refusing to play with guns, and that was quite remarkable. That was one of the most popular um, toys for boys to play with uh, when he was young. Uh, There were also times that he and his brother, for instance, beheaded a number of their sister's dolls and scattered the body parts throughout the house and in the backyards and the weeds near the fence. So he wasn't exactly a prodigy of Gandhian nonviolence from birth. In other fascinating signs of his humanity, one of the greatest public speakers in human history made two C's in two public speaking courses in his first year in seminary. I really am not clear whether the problem was him or the professor. It it could have been either or both. Uh, Dr. King was also known to smoke cigarettes and to drink alcohol in moderation. Uh, That may or may not seem scandalous today, but he was a black Baptist preacher in the South in the 1950s, so those were rebellious acts in that context. And in this brief survey of King's humanity and imperfections, it may be important to take at least a brief detour into some parallel um, aspects of humanity and imperfections in our own movement of Unitarianism and how that fits into this story. In 1951, after graduating seminary, King entered a Ph.D. program in systematic theology in Boston. And Boston is the historic center of Unitarianism. Some of you may know the joke, in the, in the 19th century in particular, Unitarianism was uh, known to be about the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the neighborhood of Boston. But King wasn't merely geographically proximate to Unitarianism in Boston. He knew our tradition fairly well. Indeed, in 1955, he completed his doctoral dissertation on a comparison of the conceptions of God in Paul Tillich and in Henry Nelson Wyman. Uh, Wyman was both an incredible process theologian as well as a Unitarian minister. 
Moreover, my colleague, the Reverend Rosemary Bray McNatt, she is uh, the first African-American president of a UU seminary. She's at Starking School for the Ministry, which is our UU identity seminary in the Bay Area. Uh, she interviewed Coretta Scott King many years ago and was surprised to learn uh, that um, from Coretta that she said we uh, went that I went to uh, Unitarian churches for years even before I met Martin and Martin and I went to Unitarian churches when we were in Boston. Along these lines, it's not a coincidence that the Unitarian Universalist Association, our own Beacon Press, uh, has an exclusive partnership um, today with the estate of Dr. King. Uh, Beacon Press is the exclusive, um, has the sole rights to print new editions of King's works in, in various new forms. It's called the King Legacy Series. There's a deep resonance between our UU principles, uh, values, and our history of activism as a movement and the legacy of Dr. King. However, Coretta Scott King continued that although she and Martin seriously considered becoming Unitarian at one time, she said, we knew that we could never build a mass movement of black people if we were Unitarian. Uh, at that time, even at the, the height of uh, people of color becoming involved with uh, UUism in the 60s, uh, there was about 1% of Unitarianism in the mid-late 60s were people of color. There's a lot more to be said here. I've addressed some of it in previous sermons. I'll link to that in the manuscript version that I put of this sermon on the internet. But to say just a little bit, on one hand, we have examples of our Unitarian forebears, some of whom are still alive today, showing up in impressive numbers in 1965 in response to Dr. King's call to join the Selma to Montgomery march. On the other hand, a few years later, in 1968 and 1969, we have uh, what's known in our movement as the black empowerment controversy or the white power controversy, depending on who you're talking to, uh, erupted in our association over the funding of the Black Affairs Council. In a few weeks, we'll explore together more about how Black Lives of UU and that movement today is seeking to heal some of the wounds left by our movement's um, failure to fully live into the work of dismantling race in previous decades. Uh, returning to our focus to King, there's another angle that's important to wrestle with regarding this golden shadow of how King's legacy calls us to live into our untapped potential. So as we discern, you know, how might I, how might we be called to live more fully into acting for peace and justice? As we wrestle with that, we also need to be honest that King's work for racial and economic justice came at a very high cost to his family. Regarding family life, there are ways in which Dr. King had progressive views toward women for his time. Keep in mind that he died prior to the 1970s and the second wave of feminism. For example, uh, they intentionally left out the traditional bridal promise for the wife to obey the husband. That was intentionally left out of their wedding vows. And in 1958, King's first book, Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story, was dedicated not only to Coretta, my beloved wife, but also called her and my coworker. At the same time, King's level of activism meant that he was almost never home. He frequently missed birthdays and other special occasions. To be specific, in the last years of his life, after he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, he was home approximately 10% of the time. 90% of the time, he was away. 
Now, in exploring Dr. King's humanity, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention his sexual infidelity, but let me hasten to add that it's always bothered me that King's affairs are too often mentioned in this scandalous light outside of any context, so allow me to add some important details that are often neglected. It's fascinating, for instance, uh, to me that King's affairs were initially discovered because the FBI was surveilling at that time not King himself, but Stanley Levison, who was a northern Jewish ally of King. Levison had been a Marxist in his younger days, but had severed all ties to the Communist Party in 1956, which was prior to him meeting King, although the FBI repeatedly tried and repeatedly failed every time to prove otherwise about ties between both King and Levison to the um, Communist Party in the 60s and beyond. To tell you just a little bit about Levison, he was in many ways a socialist who got rich anyway from capitalism. He was a powerful friend for King. The discussions, for instance, in 1959 that led to Dr. King and other um, prominent African-American ministers um, founding of the uh, Southern Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, that happened in the New York City kitchen of Stanley Levinson. In 1963, Levison quietly underwrote the Montgomery Improvement Association that King was elected president to in 1955. Also, maybe important to remember, King was 26 years old when he led the Montgomery bus boycotts. Over the years, Levison drafted articles and speeches for King. He prepared King's tax returns. He kept the coffers of the SCLC from drying up. In 58, he completed and edited um, King's first book, Strive Toward Freedom. He negotiated the publishing deal with uh, Harper and Brothers. And although Levison steadfastly refused payment for his services, King did pay in a broader sense for Levison's indisputable associations with the Communist Party back in the 40s and the 50s that lingered with him and caused that FBI surveillance. As I said earlier, um, that surveillance uh, led to the FBI discovering King's affairs, including the mailing tapes of them to Coretta, and it was really, really ugly stuff. But here's the thing. If we're going to go there, if someone's going to go there, let's also be fair and mention the reason that President John F. Kennedy pressured King uh, to distance himself from uh, Levison. And he did that pressuring in the Rose Garden because JFK was aware that if he did it elsewhere, he was maybe being taped by Hoover. Uh, And so it was because of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had this agenda against King and even more so against Levison. And the reason Kennedy was worried that about helping King in light of Hoover's um, dislike was that Hoover could retaliate by releasing information about the president's unrelenting womanizing. Here's where many of the women may be thinking hashtag me too is not new, right? But wait, there's more. Speaking of our shadow side and the ways that our repre- the repressed parts of ourselves can manifest in these twisted ways, there's at least one more ironic layer to this story. Uh, part of what drove Hoover's obsession with wiretapping other people's sexual escapades was his repressed shame about his own cross-dressing. There is, of course, nothing wrong with gender bending, except when you are doing so and then hypocritically persecuting other people for their sexual and gender freedom that you know deep down you desperately long for yourself. A lot more to say about all that, but surely that's enough armchair psychoanalysis for one morning. The overall point is that none of us, from our greatest heroes to our cruelest villains, are ever anything less than fully, messily, and complexly 
human. And in the words of the civil rights activist Andrew Young, who later became mayor of New York, Martin didn't need us to deify him. He needed us to help him. For King, Stanley Levison represented a dangerous friendship, a powerful, transformative, life-changing friendship, but one that did not come without a cost. And if we're honest about all of who Dr. King was, including how radical he was for the causes of peace and justice, then we can see that he, in many ways, too, is a dangerous friend to have. Dangerous to ever being content with an unjust status quo that has peace, liberty, and justice merely for some and not for all. Dangerous and risky, a friend to have, but also a powerful, a transformative, a life-changing one. Indeed, King was tragically killed because his activism was a threat to the injustices in our society. And we're now approaching the 50th anniversary of his assassination on April 4th. 1968. He was 39 years old when he was killed, precisely the same age that I am standing before you today. If he were still alive, tomorrow would be his 89th birthday. He should still be with us as an elder in the movement for racial justice. And King, among other things, was known for being sort of preternaturally healthy, so he might still be with us. And so on this day before MLK Day, in the memory of the tremendous legacy that he left behind, I invite you to begin turning in your hymnals to hymn 149, Lift Every Voice. As Danielle shared earlier, may we sing these words with intention and respect, conscious of the ways these lyrics call us to live into the dream that Dr. King and so many others who risked their lives in the struggle for racial justice and to build the world we dream about, a world of collective liberation, a world of economic, racial, and gender justice, not merely for some, but for all. So rise, embody your spirit. Let's sing together. So as you think about that final challenge from Danielle to give birth to the dream, as you um, maybe if you have some time later this afternoon, tomorrow for MLK Day, um, as Jack mentioned earlier, I would encourage you to Google um, Dr. King's speech beyond Vietnam uh, and watch that, read that again. Um, Also, you know, I'm reminded that King died in April. It was just a few weeks later that um, Robert Kennedy was killed in June, Uh, December. Thomas Merton died tragically on his Asian tour. Uh, so you just, 68 was a tragic loss in the, in the progressive uh, movement. But to think about, so I'd say absolutely read King first. Another powerful speech, though, to revisit is the words that Bobby Kennedy said, uh, impromptu, an impromptu speech that he gave in Indianapolis as he learned about uh, King's death. So I would uh, Google that, watch that as well, some, to think about what is this legacy that we're challenged to, to carry forward today of building the world that, that King dreamed about and that we're um, called to um, turn those dreams into deeds. So as you go into the coming days and weeks, may you continue your journey with love. Care for one another, care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.